So we want to um, turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. And we are going to uh, walk through the first seven verses. We're going to spend most of our time um, looking at an overview of the seven letters uh, to the seven churches laid out in Revelation 2 and 3. And we want to begin by looking at some dangers that Jesus warns the churches of. And then we'll talk about the rewards that come to those who conquer. And then we will look at the church at Ephesus and what Jesus has to say to his church there. As we just think back, because it's been a few weeks since we were together and we're in the end of Revelation 1, there's an overview at the beginning of your study guide. And let me just remind you there at the end in Revelation 1 and verse 17 through 20, I'm going to read these again and remind us of the reasons that we do not have to fear. So John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There in those verses, John lays out for us four reasons that we do not have to fear And we'll just remind ourselves of those as we come to hear God's word to his church. First of all, Jesus controls history. John tells us that. He said he's the one who was and who is. He's the one who who was first and last, who died and is alive forevermore. Jesus is outside of time and space. He is outside of recorded history Jesus is, as the second person of the Godhead, the agent of creation and the one who is ordering all things to their perfect and rightful end. And so because of that, we don't have to fear. Jesus controls the history of the world that we live in, not just its past and not just its future, but also its present. Jesus conquered death. That's one of the reasons we don't have to fear. Jesus says that he was alive and he died and behold, he's alive forevermore. Jesus here reminds us of his resurrection, of the reality that he has conquered the last enemy, which is death. He is the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the one who reminds us by his own powerful resurrection that we too will be raised at the last day. Just this week, we've had members of our family here who've been laid to rest. We've been reminded of the brevity of human life and the finality of death, or so it would seem. And in those moments, it can be awfully difficult for us to walk through if we do not remind ourselves that the grave is not the end for those who are in Christ. In fact, we ought to remind ourselves the grave's not the end for anyone. Because there is righteousness and life and peace given to those who have walked with Christ by faith. And there is eternal condemnation that awaits those who are outside of him. Why do we not have to fear? Jesus controls history. He conquered death. He communicates his plan. Jesus told John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. 
Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, wants us to know how this world will come to its rightful end. He wants us to know what history is all about. And so he gives this plan. He communicates what is to be. And we don't have to fear because he communes with his church by his spirit. He says in verse 20, and this will be important as we look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says in verse 20 of chapter 1, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus will go on to tell the angel of the church at Ephesus that he walks among the lampstands. Jesus is present with his church. He communes with us. And because of that, we know his presence and we do not have to fear. As we look at chapter 2, we begin to hear the letters that Jesus sends by his servant John to the churches of Asia Minor. And there are seven of these churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira, all recorded in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There's only one church, only one church that Jesus doesn't rebuke, and it's the church at Philadelphia. There's only one church that Jesus doesn't commend, and it's the church at Sardis. And then there's one church that seems to be in middle ground, without any sense of direction, and it's the church at Laodicea. And to all of the churches, Jesus sends a message that is specific to their circumstances and their situation. And yet he also tells us that he is not just speaking to that church, he is speaking to all of the churches. It's why we said at the beginning of our study that the Revelation is a circular letter. It's something that was sent to each church. The church at Ephesus would have received it first because it was first on the ancient mail route uh, that this pattern follows. It would have received the letter, made its own copy, and then sent the original on to the next church. And so forth and so on until all of the churches had received this letter because the message was for all of them. We're going to look specifically tonight at the church at Ephesus. That's really all we'll have time for after we outline a few things. But I want us to begin by thinking about how these seven letters and these seven churches are connected and what are the common themes that appear among all of these letters. And so the first thing that I want you to see is that there are seven dangers that Jesus sees for his church. We hear in chapter 2 and verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, is present with his church and walks among his church. And because of that, he knows the spiritual condition of the church. And because Jesus knows the spiritual condition of local churches, Jesus is able to identify the dangers that exist in their condition, in their circumstance. And he is kind and gracious enough to warn them. So Jesus outlines seven dangers, one for each of these churches that he sees for the church. We'll see these, I think, clearly, some of them directly illustrated and commanded by Christ himself, and some of them by implication of what he says in commending them for who they are and what they've done. When we look at the church at Ephesus, we see that the first danger for Jesus' church is that we would leave, it's leaving your first love. That's the first danger, leaving your first love. We'll talk more about that in a moment. 
But in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. We'll talk about that some more, but for the moment, just think about this, that we may often look at that and say, well, what have they abandoned? They've abandoned their love for Jesus. Or we may look at that and say, well, no, they've abandoned their love for Jesus' people. But I think if we're to understand John and his theology of the church and how God's people are supposed to relate to each other, whether it is reading his gospel in chapter 16 and chapter 17, or whether it's reading his epistles like 1 John, I think if we're to understand this rightly, we would understand that there cannot be a separation from the love of Jesus and the love of Jesus' people. So when Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, the danger I see in you is that you've abandoned, you've left your first love. He's not saying you've just left me or not saying just you've left my people. It's both. Because if you leave Jesus' people, you've left Jesus himself. So one of the dangers for the church is leaving your first love. One of the dangers for the church is fearing personal suffering. That's number two, fearing personal suffering. In chapter 2 and verse 10, he writes to the church at Smyrna and says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There we understand that the church of Smyrna is beginning to endure some suffering, some physical persecution, and some of them are tempted to turn back to the Judaism that they've grown up in, to go back to the synagogue, what he calls the synagogue of Satan. It's not him being anti-Semitic, it's him saying that that there are people out there who have not understood that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was pointing to and instead they've abandoned Jesus and they've created their own religion that is apart from Christ. And in so doing, Jesus says that there's a danger that those who endure hardship and suffering and persecution on account of their faith might actually turn away from Christ and back to, back to an old way and of religion. And so Jesus warns them that if they fear personal suffering, they're in danger. Instead, he calls them to be faithful under it. One of the dangers of that Jesus sees for his church, we see in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. And that is that in the address to the church at Pergamum, Jesus warns them against tolerating false teaching. Against tolerating false teaching. He says there, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus here is warning them. We don't know everything about these teachings. The Nicolaitans are not a known group, but there's, there's indication here that what, it, what they're being drawn to is, is something that's false, something that's antithetical to the gospel. And Jesus says it's a danger if they keep going on in this pathway against God and against God's gospel. If they continue to believe things that are false, then there's danger awaiting the church. A fourth danger that Jesus sees for his church is practicing loose living. 
to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2 and verse 20, Jesus says this, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now clearly, as we will talk about many times in the study, clearly Jesus in addressing the church at, at Thyatira is not really talking about Jezebel. Jezebel's a placeholder. She's a symbol of a system and of a, of a movement that is anti-God and that is pro-immorality. And yet she stands in this place and she is the danger for Thyatira that she has influence, that this system of evil and wickedness and despairing immorality has influence over the people of God so that where they should be pursuing holiness, they are instead practicing loose living. It's a danger when God's people do not pursue the purity that has been won for them at the cross. One of the dangers for God's people is that Jesus sees is quitting before finishing. He says to the church at Sardis in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's to the church at Sardis that Jesus has nothing good to say. He makes an assessment of them and he says that they're like a whitewashed tomb. They, they look really good on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. And Jesus says they're, they're not completely dead. There's, there's a flickering ember of light. There's just the slightest glance of life. There's just a little bit of something to hold on to. And Jesus says if they're going to live and be the church that he's called them to be, they've got to hone in on that and strengthen what remains lest they die. And in doing so, Jesus says that the whole reason they're in the condition they're in is because their work is incomplete. They quit before they finished. They gave up somewhere along the way. They were faithful somewhere along the way. They walked in obedience somewhere along the way. They were living out the claims of the gospel in their life. And then all of a sudden, somewhere, they just took a detour. They began to walk in the way that seemed right in their own eyes. They did what they thought was best. And in doing so, they gave up on the claims of God. And they stopped living in obedience to the calling of Jesus Christ on their life. They quit. They're incomplete. It's dangerous when God's people quit before they're finished. We'll talk about this again. We've talked about it before, but, but there's no crown for quitters. There's only a crown for those who finish. It's one of the reasons that my personal philosophy of ministry centers on helping everybody who starts a walk of faith in Jesus finish a walk of faith in Jesus. Because there are a whole lot of people who are sitting on the sidelines of this race who've given up. And if you give up, it doesn't mean anything. One of the dangers that Jesus sees for the church, he talks about in verse 8 of chapter 3, and that's stalling instead of following. following stalling instead of following. He says to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Now, Jesus doesn't seem to be worried about the church at Philadelphia. They, they actually seem to have their act together. They're trying to be obedient, do things that they're called to do, and walk in faithfulness to him and follow him where he leads. But there's a lesson here about the danger that's set out for the church, and that is that when God opens doors for his people, he expects us to follow him. But sometimes God opens doors for his people, and we just sit back. We stall out. We don't walk in obedience. It's a danger when we fail to go where Jesus leads us. There's a final danger that I see, and that's in verse 15 of chapter 3 in his address to the church at Laodicea. It's dangerous for the church when we're remaining indifferent to God's calling. When we're remaining indifferent to God's calling. See, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. Jesus says to them, you're lukewarm. You're good for nothing. I want to spew you out of my mouth. You, you just seem indifferent. You, you're apathetic. You, you have no real fire. You're not convicted about anything. You just stand in the middle ground. And Jesus says there isn't any middle ground. There's no neutral territory. Nobody gets to ride the fence. You either are with me or you're against me. It's dangerous when the people of God remain indifferent to God's call. So Jesus warns his church of the dangers that he sees for them. But he also shows them the rewards that come to those who finish well. In every letter to these seven churches, in every one of these letters, there is a line about conquering. And Jesus wants them to understand that it really does matter that they finish their walk of faith, that they are victorious, that they conquer. And Jesus has in mind here a, a race of faith, and that race isn't really marked out against each other. It's just marked out against the world that we live in. Victory is not measured by our ability to achieve a faster race or a quicker pace than someone else on the lap. It's just, it's just our ability to finish. He wants everybody to finish. He wants everybody to overcome. He wants everybody to conquer. And in every one of the letters, as Jesus lays out the specific needs and successes of the churches, he teaches them what awaits those who conquer. So I want to show these to you. And you, you have these written down, so we'll move a little more quickly. In his address to the church at Ephesus in verse 7, Jesus, he says to the one who conquers, there's the, there's the right to eat of the tree of life. He says in verse 7, To the one who conquers, I will grant to the eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You understand that Jesus' people, in the very beginning of human history, once knew the deepness and closeness of the presence of God, unlike anything you and I have ever experienced. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. And they had the opportunity to eat of all measure of trees, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we remember that in that particular garden, what they were marked out by was disobedience. And we talked before, but we will again, and that is the fact that in the Revelation, there's a reversal of the curse. 
And that actually what is happening is that God is depicting a scene where His people come back into the garden, figuratively. We come back into close relationship with Him. We have that nearness of connection to Him. We enjoy His presence forever. And in doing so, there is the offer to eat of the tree of life for the one who conquers. And that is the way of saying that we enjoy God's presence forever. We know the fullness of this promise that has been extended to us. We know the salvation and the life that is eternal that's had in Jesus Christ. So one of the rewards for the one who conquers is the right to eat of the tree of life. The second that we see in verse 11 of chapter 2 in his address to Smyrna is that we are not to be hurt by the second death. Jesus says that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The, The second death, you understand, is the judgment of God against sinners. Every one of us endures the first death. Every one of us goes through death that is in this life, physical death and the loss of our earthly lives. If we live long enough, we're going to die. And yet, just because we have a place in the first death doesn't mean that we've been judged, condemned, and is apart from God. That is the work of the second death. It's in the second death that Jesus condemns, and it's in the second death that sinners are cast out. It's in the second death that hell and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. It's in the second death that there's real and eternal condemnation. And those who take part in the second death are separated from God forever. And so Jesus says, if you conquer, if you overcome, if you finish well, if you endure to the end, then you have no need to worry about the second death. You never have to face it. One of the rewards for the one who conquers is, we see in the address to the church at Pergamum in verse 17 of chapter 2, It's the gift of the hidden manna and the white stone with a new name. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, what Jesus is saying here is is that there's a great banquet set before the people of God. There's a, there, there's a, a, a sort of bridal celebration that's going to happen. And, and entry into that celebration requires a token. It requires, it requires the, the, the admittance ticket. There's, there's something that you have to give in order to have a place in that celebration. It's by invitation only. We'll read about that in Revelation 19 and verse 9 where where we hear, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet here from the outset in his address to the church at Pergamum, Jesus says to the one who conquers, he gets that invitation. He gets the little white stone that a name would have been written on. That would have been their token. It would have been the way that they got access into this grand celebration. And Jesus is saying that relationship and life with God's people forever is like a grand celebration. And the one who conquers is admitted. To the church at Thyatira, Jesus says that the one who conquers is given authority over the nations to rule with a rod of iron, and they are given the morning star. He says in verses 26 to 28, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, 
and I will give him the morning star. What Jesus seems to be saying to the church at Thyatira is this, that the people of God who conquer, who overcome, who endure, who are faithful, who finish well, the people of God begin to reign with the Lamb. And in doing so, they are given authority over the nations. And that authority is not so that they might administer justice in terms of of meeting out the normal course of human history. It's so that they administer justice in terms of condemning all the powers and all the authorities and all the rulers that are opposed to God and the Lamb. There will be at the last day the destruction of every force that has ever reared its head against God Almighty. And Jesus is promising that those who finish well, those who conquer, they'll have a part in the meeting out of that eternal judgment. When he says that he will give them the morning star, that's the way of saying that they will be grand and glorious in their victory. They will shine brightly as the people of God who have overcome forever. One of the rewards of those who conquer we see in the letter to the church at Sardis, it's that they're clothed in white robes and their names will not be blotted out but will be confessed. Jesus says in chapter 3 and verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See, Jesus holds out that the one who conquers really does belong to him. And because the one who conquers really does belong to Jesus, they're given what's necessary to live in the presence of God and the Lamb. The righteousness that comes by faith in Christ himself. The the deliverance, the the bequeathal of white garments is a way of saying that the righteousness of Christ is given to those who conquer, who, who are really his. In a few weeks... We'll come to chapter 6 and when we do, we'll see the seals broken open and we'll come to that place where we hear the voice of the martyrs who are beneath the altar of God and they'll say, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge us? And Jesus will say, just a little longer. Be clothed in white robes and be at rest. See, the promise of God to those who conquer is that they have what it takes to dwell in His presence forever. His holiness given to them. He says that not only are they given His holiness, He says, but their names aren't blotted out of His book. You and I, we, as Baptist people, One of the things that we hold, one of the doctrines that we are pretty firm on is the security of the believer. We we believe that when a person believes in Jesus, their life is hidden with him forever and their faith is secured and they're going to be with God forever. Thought about that. I always think about this when, when I read about our names not being blotted out. I have a dear friend who grew up in another faith tradition and the eternal security of the believer was not something that she was accustomed to believing. She thought she could lose her salvation. She thought she had lost her salvation many times along the way in her life. And so one day her husband, not long after they'd been married, 
sat her down and he said, I want you to write your name on a sheet of paper. So she took a pencil and she wrote her name there. And he said, now erase it. So she erased her name. He said, write it again. She wrote it again. Erase it again. She erased it again. And back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until she'd written and erased her name so many times that there was no paper left. There was only a hole where paper had once been. And he looked at her and said, do you really think that the grace of God is no more effective than that? When Jesus Christ saved you by grace through faith, He saved you to the uttermost. And those who conquer really do belong to Him. And those who conquer, their names cannot be taken out of His book. To the church at Philadelphia, Jesus says one of the rewards of the one who conquers is that they're made a pillar in the temple of God. They're marked by the name of God, by the name of the city of God, by God's own new name. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. It's significant that Jesus says that the one who conquers is made a pillar in the temple of God. We'll read in chapter 7 of about the numbering of God's people. And, and later on, we'll read about the measuring of the temple of God and, and, the, and the city of God, how it's measured. And in, in those passages, when we hear God's people numbered and we see God's dwelling place measured, one of the things that we're going to be reminded of is that God is in full possession of His people and God is building a people and a dwelling place that's eternally secure. And so when Jesus says that the one who conquers is like a pillar, He's made a pillar in the temple of God, He's not saying that He's really a, a physical pillar. He's saying that He he has a place that cannot be taken away. He's got eternal security. He dwells in the house of the Lord. Just like a column that holds the place up. To the church at Laodicea, Jesus says that those who conquer are granted the right to reign with Christ. He says in verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. There are warnings, there are dangers for the church, but there are also rewards that await those who conquer. And the instruction for us and for all of God's people is to listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Read with me chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7, and I want us to think about the church at Ephesus. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. 
If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The first thing I want you to see in verse 1 is this, that Jesus is present with and powerful in his church. Jesus is present with and powerful in his church. There are two illustrations that we see here. One is of the angel of the church or the seven stars, and then there are the seven golden lampstands. Chapter 1 and verse 20 told us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. One of the things that we'll use as a a, a principle of biblical interpretation going through the Revelation is that when John or when the Lord Jesus tell us what something means, we will let it mean that until we have cause to think it means something else. And so when we look at the seven stars or the seven lampstands, we've had those defined for us. Primitively, but they are defined. In chapter 1 and verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves. Jesus says in verse 1 of chapter 2 that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. The angels of the churches he holds in his hand. He's powerful. He's powerful in his church. He holds them in the position of authority. He has control over them. But the question is, who are the angels of the seven churches? Who's the angel of the church at Ephesus? Sometimes we'll look at this and theologians, uh, some theologians will say uh, that this is the pastor of the church, that the word angel means messenger. And so maybe this is a way of saying the messenger in the church, the, the pastor of the local church. The problem with that is that nowhere in the New Testament usage of the word angel do we have that kind of illustration. That's just not how this word is ever used. And in all of John's 75 uses of the word angel, he is always and ever referring to an angelic heavenly being. Not to an earthly being and not to, not to some sort of spiritual force. Uh, that's one of the other ways that this is sometimes interpreted. It's some kind of, uh, of spiritual force or spiritual uh, symbol of the church's life. I think we're to understand that this is an angel. It's a heavenly being. It's a heavenly being that's in the presence of God, that's actually in the palm of God's hand. Why are there angels for the churches? I don't think we can define that at this point. And why does the message come to the angels of the church? I don't know that we know that either. But I think we're to recognize at this point that there is a spiritual reality or a spiritual counterpart to the earthly reality. You and I know the earthly reality. You and I know that there's Elkdale Baptist Church at 2221 Elkdale Street in Selma, Alabama, in Dallas County, in the state of Alabama, in the United States. We know there's this physical place, and we know that there are all of these people who comprise this local body of believers, and we could name lots and lots of them. Not all of them, because we're, we're a little too big to know everybody, right? But we can name lots of them and we could go through and we could talk about all the pastors that we've had and we could talk about all the the people who've been a part of this congregation for 70 years. We know the, the physical reality of this church. But there's a spiritual counterpart to Elkdale. 
There's something that's behind the scenes that's on the other side of what we see in our natural, in our natural life. There's a spiritual reality about Elkdale Baptist Church that exists eternally in the heavens with God that you and I, we don't get to see the fullness of. We don't even understand all about it. We just know that it exists. I think part of that is to say that there's an angel, there's a messenger before the very face of God who represents this body of believers. How all that works out, I'm not exactly sure, but, but I think we're to recognize there's more to this thing than what you and I can see. How do you know that? Well, I know that because I know Ephesians 6 tells us that there are powers and principalities and rulers of this world that are always at work. And if there are dark forces of evil at work on the spiritual side of things, then I know there have to be heavenly forces of work that are always availing and always advancing the mission of Christ. The seven stars are the seven angels. And he writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus. The seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves. And that's easy enough for us to understand. And the thing that's worthwhile pointing out is that Jesus really is present with his church. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He knows who they are. He knows their faith and their failure. He's with them. God really is with you. And He really is with me. And He really is with us. And I know sometimes that it would seem that He's far off. I know there are things that you face in your life where you wonder, does God even know about me? Does He even care? But he does, church. He deeply cares about you. He sees you right where you are. When you cry yourself to sleep over the anguish in your life, when you plead in the late night hours for mercy to be extended, when you face death, And wonder how you'll go on. And when you know the joys of newborn babies crying. And the highs and the lows. He's really there with you. And he's in there in the ordinary things too. Like when you wash dishes because you don't have a dishwasher. He's right there. And he really does love you. And he really does care for you. And sometimes God orchestrates events in our lives to make us know His presence. He takes us like Elijah to the mountainside and says, I just want you to sit here for a minute and watch for the still, small voice of the Lord. Jesus is with His church. Here at Elkdale, And all around the world, he's present with and powerful in his church. He knows the successes and the struggles of his church. That's what we see in verses 2 to 4. He knows the successes and the struggles of his church. 
It says there in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Four things, four successes that Jesus sees in the church at Ephesus. First of all, he sees that the Ephesian believers worked hard. They worked hard. There's that word toil. He says, I know your works and you toil. That, that word toil, it, it means that they've sweated. They, I mean, they've done hard physical labor. Their work might be predominantly spiritual. It might be really sort of uh, theological. It might be about doctrine. But in the middle of all of it, they've, they've done hard work. They've labored for the Lord. He says that the Ephesian believers, not only have they worked hard, they've withstood evil. He says, I see your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. And that's his way of saying that you aren't tolerating it. There's evil around you. There are people who teach false doctrine. There are people who say they come in the name of Christ, but they don't really there are people who are professing to have some sort of uh, allegiance to the church, but really they're, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And he says where a lot of people would give way to them, where a lot of people are, are embracing the wicked way of the world, instead you withstand evil. You don't let it get to you. You can't bear it, he says. He says that the Ephesian believers, one of their successes is that they have watched Witnesses. They've watched witnesses. He says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Now, you remember, if you go back to our study of Galatians, you remember there are a lot of ways that the word apostle is used in the New Testament. I won't rehearse all of those now, but just remember this, that sometimes the word apostle means the twelve. And sometimes the word apostle means those who were a part of the the group that saw Jesus' ministry from the time of his baptism to the time of his resurrection. And then sometimes the word apostle is used of those who are sent out by the people of God in the name of Christ to do the mission of Christ. They're the missionaries. We would use that word missionary. Apostello in the Greek means to send, and missio in the Latin means to send. It's our word missionary. That's probably what's in view here. When Jesus talks about the them testing those who've called themselves apostles. He's not talking about the 12, and he's not talking about those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. He's talking about those who've been sent out, those who, who claim to be missionaries, those who say that they have a mission or a, a ministry that God has given them. And he says that the believers at Ephesus, they have become attuned to the Spirit, and they realize that not everybody who says that they follow Christ actually follows Christ. And not everybody who says they preach the gospel really preaches the gospel. And so he says they watch these witnesses, these missionaries, these apostles. They watch them. They put them to the test. Want to see if you really do believe what you say you believe. In the life of the church, we have practical things like this. And when somebody joins, becomes a, a member of Elkdale, we don't just turn over the, the position of uh, a Sunday school teacher to them. We want to get to know them first. We want to see, do they really have a, a real understanding of the gospel? Are they settled in their faith? Do they, really, do they really adhere to the truth of the word? Are they willing to uphold the teachings of scripture? Are they obedient to the leadership of the church? 
We put them to the test. We make sure they really are with us. We do that with our children's ministry. When somebody comes and they want to belong to Elkdale, it's great, but we don't just let them go serve in the nursery. We put them to the test. We want to make sure they're real, that they're authentic, that they don't have intent to harm. We want to check them out. We want to see their true colors. And Jesus says that the church at Ephesus did that. They watched these people who claimed to be witnesses of Christ, and they often found that they weren't. And then he says that one of their successes is that the Ephesian believers witnessed Christ. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. It is the clear conviction and belief in Jesus Christ himself that spurs on their ministry and work. They are witnessing for Jesus in in the work that they do in the world. And yet Jesus knows their struggle as well. He says in verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They left their first love. We might say that that's the love simply of Jesus. We might say it's the love of his people, but really, it's both. I think what we're to understand from what we read about the church at Ephesus in verses 2 and 3, and then again in verse 6, when he talks about that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, I think what we're to understand is that this is a church that understands that there is real doctrinal error out there. There, There's false teaching abounding. There, There are people out there who are preaching a false gospel, and they have become so gung-ho in in testing people who are preaching, they're, they're, so, uh, they're so particular in wanting to make sure that people adhere to the truth and in sorting out all of those who are preaching anything false, that in their zeal for doctrinal purity, they have become personally caustic. They don't, they don't love each other anymore. They're so gung-ho on truth that they miss the opportunity to love. You can't really love people without truth, but you can't really believe the truth without loving people. And the problem is that they've divorced these two. They've left their first love. I didn't put this on the list. Pardon me. It got added at the last minute. But I want to ask the question, how do you know that you've left your first love? And I want to give you four ways that I think we can know if we've left our first love. The first one is this. You've left your first love when you enjoy discovering that people adhere to false doctrine. You've left your first love when you enjoy discovering that people adhere to false doctrine. Listen, if, if you are so particular in your view of another person's belief, that you're listening and hanging on every word so that you can look for something they say that's out of line. And then you seem to rejoice and be glad about the fact that you caught them rather than to mourn the fact that they believe something false and to seek to help them come back to the right way. Then you've left your first love. One of my dear friends had opportunity to teach in one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. And he's as conservative as I am, if not more so. He's very conservative. But he went to one of our seminaries to teach in a winter term. And in doing so, he he was kind of 
doing a job interview. He was seeing if this was something he wanted to do all the time, become a full-time professor. And in, in that one winter term that he taught, he said, I, I realized this was not something I wanted to do. He said, because the students that I was teaching, they, they had this strong mentality. They were looking for something that was wrong. They, they wanted to see if you would say anything that was out of what they believed to be right doctrine, because then they could go and report you to the administration. And he said, I, I didn't want to teach in an environment like that. They, there's no love there. There's no enjoyment of God and his word and desire to build faith and be ready for ministry. There, there's just a hostile environment. When we become hostile, when we are glad about finding that somebody believes something false, we've left our first love. Number two, you've left your first love when you make major issue out of minor doctrine for the purpose of showing your spiritual superiority. You've left your first love when you make major issue out of minor doctrine for the purpose of showing your spiritual superiority. Sometimes, sometimes we, we become so in love with God and, and we want to read the Word, and we want to understand the Word, want to educate ourselves, we want to know it backwards and forwards and inside and out. And then all of a sudden, rather than letting that burn on our love for God and cause us to, to fall in love with Him more and to want to encourage others to be more in love with God and to follow Him more wholeheartedly. Instead, we begin to use that like a knife. And we begin to cut at people and say, well, you're wrong about that. We go to Sunday school and we hear somebody say something. We say, well, that's not exactly right. And rather than being gracious and charitable in our relationship, we just go and say, well, you're wrong. We come to church and we hear... We hear somebody give a testimony and they say something that maybe just isn't exactly so. And rather than just being grateful for the work of God in their life, we say, you're wrong. There was a man who's not a, not a member, but uh, not here, another church. There was a man who came up during the Christmas season one time and his first Sunday of Advent, he came up and he said, listen, I don't see anywhere in the Bible that angels sing. Why do we keep singing about angels singing? All these Christmas songs say that angels sing. I said, I think of all the things we're going to get worked up over. I just really don't think this one's that big a deal. Let's just, you know, let it go, man. Second Sunday of Advent. I don't see anywhere in the Bible that it says that angels sing. Why do we got to get so worked up about angels singing? I'm telling you, it's wrong. We got to stop singing these songs. Of all the things we can get worked up over, I just don't think this one's that important. Let's let it go. Third Sunday of Advent, service ended, came up. He said, there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that angels sing. Why are we singing about angels singing? we got to stop this mess. And I said, you know what? I think you've forgotten the whole reason he came in the first place. Brother, be joyful about his coming. Sure, every now and then we sing something that's not exactly so. We try not to. We try to be careful but we're fallible people. But when we major on the minors just to show that we are spiritually superior, we have left our first love. Number three, you've left your first love when your spiritual differences prevent you from extending grace or ministering mercy to those you believe are opposed to Christ. When you know that you and another person are on different sides of Jesus. 
And you let that stop you from giving care and concern, from extending grace and ministering mercy in their hour of need. You don't really love Jesus and you don't really love his people. Listen, we, we don't have to agree with each other 100% in order to love each other the way Jesus calls us to love each other. And if we don't learn to love the people that are opposed to Jesus, we won't ever win them to him. Number four, you've left your first love when your mastery of spiritual things stops leading to practical transformation. You've left your first love when your mastery of spiritual things stops leading to personal practical transformation. Listen, if you are stacking up facts about God, about the Word, about theology and doctrine, if you just can quote things at random, if you've got them all up there just just like bullets in the gun, ready to go at a moment's notice, but it doesn't actually lead to you being more holy, then you've left your first love. Jesus knows the successes and struggles of His church And he lays out the path toward redemption for his church. He says in verse 5, we're almost done, but he says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Look at verse 7. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says you're not what you ought to be because you've left your first love, but you can be again. And he lays out the path toward redemption. He says if you don't follow it, you're going to get removed. The the whole presence of God among you, the the working of the Holy Spirit in you, your, your being the people of God will no longer be. You'll be like Sardis. You'll be like a whitewashed tomb. The power will have gone out. You'll have a form. What Paul said, you'll have a form of godliness, but you'll have denied its power. So Jesus says, why don't, you, why don't you do what it takes to find redemption? And he gives us four steps. The first one is this. He says, the path toward redemption, it involves remembering. It involves remembering. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. You've you got to go back in your mind and say, where did, I, where did I get wrong on this thing? I mean, when I got saved, I had a deep, abiding, fiery love for God and love for His church. I just wanted to take it all in. I wanted to know the Word. I wanted to to, to be in church. I wanted to worship. I, I had an abiding life in God. But somewhere it became mundane. Where did it all go wrong? Go back. Go back in your heart. Go back to that place where you had that deep, abiding relationship with Christ. And start over there you got to remember. Number two, the path toward redemption, it involves repenting. Jesus says to them, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent. Repent. Repentance is more than confession. We've talked about that before. We will again. Sometimes we say, well, repentance is confession. We just tell God we're wrong. That's part of it. You've got to acknowledge you're wrong in order to get right. But repentance is not just saying to the Lord, Lord, I've been wrong. It's also turning away from what you've been doing this wrong and turning back back towards God. So you've got to remember, and then you've got to repent. And then he says the third step on that path toward redemption is re-engaging. He says, do the works that you did at first. Just start over. 
Go back to what you used to do. Go back to what you know works. Sometimes we, we forget those disciplines that we had early in our walk with Christ that helped us to grow and to be deeper in our walk with Him and we begin to get far from those things and so we wonder, how are we to go on? Well, we've got to go back to those things. And then there's a fourth thing and you, I don't think you have number four on yours but add it there. The path toward redemption involves responding. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the implication of that is that to hear is to obey, to respond in obedience to Jesus Christ, to do what He's commanded us to do. I don't think Elkdale's a church that's left its first love. But I think there might be some people among us who have. Maybe they sit with us every Sunday or maybe they're homebound or maybe they've, they've just gotten tied up in other things. Somewhere along the way, they got distracted and they took a detour and they're far from what God wants them to be. And it's God's call on them and it's God's call on us to go back to your first love. A love for Jesus and a love for His church. Father, thank You for Your Word that preaches to us the truth of the Gospel, not just in theory, but in practice. We're called on this very night to go back to our first love. So help us, Lord, to see if we've left You. And give us, Lord, the grace to come back to You so that we might indeed conquer and eat of the tree of the life in the paradise of God. One day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.